I'll call my talk this evening, Vipassana, the way to freedom. How many of us, in times past, indeed, perhaps even now, have felt isolated, out of touch with things, out of touch with the world, have felt somehow that life was passing us by, that we couldn't reach out and feel it and get involved in it? How many of us have felt depressed? and uncertain, agitated and fearful. How many of us have viewed these states, these fears, these depressions, and felt that there must be more to life than this? There must be more to life than going to work to earn money, to eat, so you can go to work to earn money, to eat, round and round. Everyone has felt like this. Even the most optimistic person in the world feels like this from time to time. Why? Why does it happen? And indeed, what can you do about it? It happens for two reasons. Firstly, the infinite calls to each one of us. It calls in a deep, silent voice that we have a job to recognize. There is something a beyond that sets up a resonance in each one of us. And that resonance means we need to find an answer. The finding of that answer is fulfilling the purpose of life itself. The finding of that answer means coming to an end of separation, an end of isolation. The finding of that answer is to come to infinity itself. Men have called this reality, they've called it God, they called it nirvana, they called it freedom. The words are legion, but the sense is always the same. There is that which is, that which is beyond, that which is non-dual, that where there is no separation and no isolation, no agitation and no fear. And we all at one level know this. We know it right down in the very depths of our beings. So deeply is it buried, however, that we do not recognize what it is. We don't recognize this call, this pull for what it is, and not recognizing it, we misinterpret feelings. We misinterpret the feeling of lack the feeling of loss, the feeling of dissociation. We try and fill that emptiness, that void, that ache, with all kinds of different activities. Some of us try to fill it up with work. We work from dawn till dusk. We work all the hours there are. Some of us fill it up with family and relationships, building our life around 
close people, people who are related by blood in one way or another. We try and fill every cranny of our existence with family. Others take to drink, others to drugs, some sex, others power, trying to accumulate power, power often in the form of money. Money making, in excess at any rate, is a sure sign that someone is trying to fill up this aching void, this gap, this feeling of desperation, this feeling of unfulfillment, trying to fill it up with things which can indeed never do the job. <coughs> Some people try and fill up this void with intellect, building wonderful fairy castles of intellect and mind. Some exercise their creative function, becoming artists, creators, sculptors, painters. Every activity you can think of, every mundane activity has been used and is used to try and still that sense of desolation which exists as an eradicable centre in the human being who is not fulfilling life's real purpose. Everyone seeks to dull the pain of this separation. It's the natural thing to do. And so we could say, loosely speaking, that all people are on the same path. All people are on the road to the deathless. It's just that they misinterpret the direction required to still that ache inside. Even the worst criminal, a man like Hitler, or the most admirable altruist, someone like, say, Albert Schweitzer. All these people are seeking an end to this feeling of emptiness, an end to that painful void, an end to the sense of isolation from the world. If you consider that we've all lived many times before, over lifetimes we must have tried many, many things. How many times has each one of us been mother or father, daughter or son? How many times has each one of us been a householder or a tramp, a rich man, a poor man? How many times has each one of us been a craftsman, an artist, a soldier? We've been many, many things in our history. We've all experienced many, many different roles. And we've found that those roles have been unable to bring us the peace and freedom we're looking for. 
Eventually, and it does take a long time, eventually we run out of options. Still dissatisfied. We seem to have tried everything there is. Just about. And yet, nothing has brought us the freedom from dissatisfaction that we seek. Perhaps we try other alternatives. We try religion. Or we go in for occultism of one sort or another. Or maybe we try meditation. Whichever it is, eventually we find our own way, the way which for us is the right one to approach that infinite. When that happens, there's a sense of rightness and adventure that comes into the mind, a sense that it doesn't matter how tough the going is, this road is going to be a delight to tread. It's going to be a joy to walk along. Some people's right road is, of course, vipassana, vipassana meditation. Insight meditation. It is the direct way to freedom. Vipassana doesn't bother with side issues at all. We've tried enough of those in the past. It's not concerned with the mundane issues of lifestyle. It's not concerned whether one is practicing astrology or one is a bookkeeper. It's not concerned with one's basic approach in the broad sense. Vipassana of itself is only interested in driving straight toward the goal. It's suitable for nearly all peoples and nearly all cultures. There will of course always be some who aren't yet ready for meditation. The practice of vipassana rests upon a very necessary foundation and that is what the books call sila or ethical discipline. If you think about the sense of separation that we've all experienced, each one of us, think about violence. Would you not agree that entertaining violent thoughts increases that sense of separation? Think about greed. Think about anger. Think about hatred. Think about theft, taking things which don't belong to you. Would you not agree that all of those things increase that sense of separation from what is? They have to. You can only do those things if you consider yourself a thing apart. <coughs> so Vipassana meditation is founded upon, as a platform, sila or ethical discipline. For the layperson, in the form of the five precepts you know so well. These five precepts, this discipline, adjusts the lifestyle, if it's necessary, so it accords more with a way of living 
that is, at least in outward form, not against the fulfillment of that dream, that pull, which is set in each one of us by the infinite itself. In short, the discipline is there to bring us into line with reality. It can only do the most external of jobs, obviously, but what it does do is calm the mind to the point where samadhi or concentration, mindfulness and clear comprehension to the point where these can be developed. Concentration is necessary in some small degree. Mindfulness is essential right the way through. And clear comprehension is equally vital. It's pointless being aware if, you're, if you don't know what you're aware of. All of these, then, the training of concentration, the training of mindfulness, and the training of clear comprehension, f form the basis for clearing the mind of many of its wrong views. It begins to allow insight to grow, insight or panya, wisdom, to grow. How is this done? What is this insight? Insight itself is not concerned with right behavior or wrong behavior. It's not concerned with the way in which you lead your life. Vipassana meditation is concerned solely to see precisely what real phenomena are. It is concerned only to examine the fundamental aspects of our mental and physical experience to discover whether or not they're permanent, whether or not they're satisfactory, and whether or not they are separated out from reality itself. Right behavior, wrong behavior, that's the function of sila or discipline. Vipassana is only concerned with looking at the ultimates of experience. To see that all conditioned things, all conditioned ph phenomena, mental or physical, are transient. All conditioned phenomena, mental or physical, are unsatisfactory in the sense that they are not what we seek. They cannot produce the peace we seek. And all things are anatta. They are not, in fact, separated out from reality. Vipassana strikes at the very roots of our wrong views. In the past, in the past, going back these many lifetimes, we believe passionately that certain things were going to give us satisfaction. That a certain way of life would be permanently satisfactory for us. We believe passionately that being a millionaire, or being a soldier, or being an artist, or being a mother, or being 
you name it, any, any one of the things we all know so well, any one of those things we believed passionately would provide the answers to the questions we had. They would fill that aching gap in our lives. They never do. They never did. They never will. Vipassana strikes at the roots of those wrong views. We believe those things would heal the hurt within us. We were wrong. Through un Vipassana we come to understand why it is we were wrong. We were searching for the infinite, although perhaps we didn't realize it at the time, we were searching for the infinite within the limited, finite world of conditioned phenomena. phenomena. There's no way you can find that infinite in the finite, in the condition. No wonder we suffered. And to the extent that we're still looking in the wrong place, no wonder we suffer now. Vipassana cut straight through all of that, all of that searching in the wrong area, all of that belief that a particular lifestyle, per se, is going to provide the answer. It cuts through by examining all mental and physical phenomena. We're sitting in meditation. We experience a painful feeling, a feeling in the back, as likely as not. What do we do? We try to pay attention to it. But all too soon, that gets exceedingly painful, and we begin then to fear that this pain is going to be permanent. It's going to go on, it's going to go on, it's going to go on. And indeed, it's not uncommon for strange and indeed rather ludicrous in retrospect, strange speculations to grow on this. I might be crippled for life. I might be set in one position. They're going to have to carry me out when the meditation's over. At least it'll show I've been trying. These views occur. So, fearing the worst, we're determined to get rid of the pain. Obviously we can't give up, so we try another course of action, usually extreme concentration. We concentration, concentrate like bilio on the pain, and sure enough it disappears but unfortunately, so do we, we fall asleep or we fall into daydream. All the while then, we're playing games in a sense. We're not actually examining the mental and physical phenomena, we're adjusting, we're steering, we're trying somehow to make it work for us, rather than just letting it happen. A better approach would be there's a feeling of pain in the back, fine. One notes it. Comes back perhaps to rise and fall, but the pain is sufficiently intense that you can't get away from it. Okay, so you concentrate on the pain, noting it as painful feeling. All too soon, there's the thought, my goodness, this is going to go on forever. So you note thinking and come back to the pain. What a difference already. It's taken it right out of that area of almost frantic 
emotional response. There's a cool, calm and collected viewing of what's taking place. Thinking. Back to the feeling. Again the mind will flip off. I don't know whether I can stand this. Thinking. Back to the feeling of painfulness. Never letting the mind to zip off into those realms of fantasy which it's so fond of getting into if it can. Vipassana then cuts straight through all of the, the adjustments we try to make. It cuts straight through all of the different lifestyles we might prefer to set up. It deals solely with what is here and now. But you do have to be peculiarly on your toes to catch all the different angles, as you know. What normally happens is that we cope with some of the more obvious escape mechanisms we set up and then get trapped by a more subtle one which, when it's pointed out, always turns, to be, turns out to be something of the nature of thinking. There it is, the meditation seems to have got stuck, there's nothing going on we say and then it's pointing it out, but you're thinking that there's nothing going on, so thinking is happening. Even that then is included within the practice. The Vipassana then examines all mental and physical phenomena, leaving nothing out. And it shows that these mental and physical phenomena are not the infinite which we seek the infinite which calls to us. Eventually, the mind ceases to rely on these as props to its lifestyle, these physical phenomena, these mental phenomena. Eventually it ceases to place any store by them. And in that way, it becomes free. It takes a great leap beyond conditioned phenomena, a leap into the infinite. The infinite is seen and at that instant all separation ceases. There is no me, there is no other, there is no one, there is no two, there is no here, no there. The canon puts it rather nicely. It says, There no sun is seen, no moon shines. There is no earth, no air, no fire, no water. There is peace. That, paraphrased, is trying to illustrate <coughs> that any distinction you draw between this and that is effectively a separation. Any distinction between you and someone else, between me and that, between subject and object, between good and bad, black and white, any distinction at all ensures separation, ensures duality and is therefore directly opposed, if you like, to the beyond, 
to reality, to Nibbana. When that sense of separation disappears, that sense of emptiness which has been with us for lifetime upon lifetime also disappears. It goes. That empty void which so many people, indeed I would say all people, experience inside, that feeling of not being able to assuage that hurt, that deep pain in any way, all of that disappears. There is a sense of fullness, completeness, wholeness, rightness, very difficult to give you sufficient words for it. It's just that everything is as it should be and there is no sense of lack or loss or anything missing at all. When we've come to that point we've fulfilled life's purpose. We have answered that call. And we can say we have done that which had to be done. This life is but a school, a tough school, but it is a school. And there are lessons to be learned, just as there are in any school. And we can pass or we can fail. If we fail, we just have to try again. It's very easy, very simple. The rules are as simple as you like. But staying the course is difficult in one way. Pass, attaining passing grades is difficult because the tests, the exams, the obstacles are always those things which hit us most personally. They're not going out and making a million or becoming managing director of an enormous multinational company. <coughs> They're not becoming a film star or a rock idol. Those aren't the goals, those aren't the obstacles, those aren't the tests. The tests are how well do you stand up when you lose your pet rabbit when you're five years old? How well do you stand up to relationships which break? How well do you stand up to the apparently dirty deals that life serves you from time to time? How do you stand up when your best friend seems to betray you? How do you stand up when, for no reason that you can see, you suddenly are in an accident and become injured? Worse still, how do you stand up when one of your children is injured through no apparent fault of his or her own? These are the tests. These are the things which hit hardest. These are the things which make life most difficult. How do we respond? What constitutes a path in any of these tests? It's worth thinking about. Is it always to turn the other cheek? Or is it sometimes to strike back? 
is it to recognize that these are these events are part of the warp and woof of life itself and something with which we just have to cope no matter how and that the true meaning of life lies on a deeper level difficult questions and yet in each one of us we have the answer I'm reminded of a little story which I think some of you have heard but it bears retelling Gotama as you know used to wander around the Ganges Basin spending a lot of time on tour and one day he was passing through a small village when he spied a cobra not far away from his line of travel and this cobra evidently wished to speak to him so Gautama went over and said <coughs> hello snake what can I do for you and the cobra professed a strong interest, a keen interest in learning metta meditation Gautama taught the snake metta <coughs> he gave him explicit instructions as how exactly to practice and went on his way it must have been some six months later that he passed by the same spot again and it occurred to him to wonder what had become of this snake to whom he'd taught meditation so he went over and found him and the poor snake was looking rather less than his normal handsome self he had cuts and scratches he looked very crestfallen indeed he looked very much the worse for wear and Gautama inquired and said what on earth has happened to you? and the snake said this meditation is so difficult this metta he said all the boys of the village throw sticks and stones at me he said but I have not broken my meditation I still practice metta and yet he said I'm getting so weak from my wounds now I wonder how long I can live Gautama said foolish snake I did not say you couldn't hiss a little all of us have to learn when to hiss and when to turn the other cheek how do we do it? we do it by a feeling of rightness inside there is a still small voice there which, which speaks all the time but you have to learn to be able to listen to it when you can listen to it then you know which is the best course of action under any circumstances and in doing that in learning how to listen in that way you find that most of the problematic areas are resolved you do what you know you must do so not only then does the vipassana cut straight through the tangle straight through all considerations of lifestyle and everything else straight through to the heart of the matter whether things are transient unsatisfactory and non-self 
Not only does it do that, but in training the mind to pay, pay close attention in that way, we also turn up various other very, very positive benefits. Firstly, the sila, the discipline, that enables us to live a little bit more in harmony with other people, if not indeed with ourselves. That comes later. But the vipassana, allowing us to see more closely the workings of mind and body, begins to make us aware of that other aspect of the mind. You could call it intuition if you like, it's a poor word for it I think, but that sense of rightness, that sense of knowing when you're on the right track or not. And indeed conversely that sense of wrongness, when you know there is something you shouldn't really do, but you do it anyway, and then suffer later. So although the Vipassana heads straight through to the ultimates, there are several very beneficial side effects, not least of which is coming to recognize how truly to live in harmony with the environment. And so we learn life's lessons on many fronts and more quickly. Vipassana is truly the way to freedom and there is none to beat it.